Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So it's not often that we get the chance to add yet another tribunal to our collection. But today, courtesy of the roving reporter and friend of the podcast, Molly Quell, we get that opportunity. Yes, today it's ITLOS, the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea. You went to Hamburg, Molly. I went to Hamburg. Why? It's a good question. (laughs) Actually, as as a city, I like Hamburg. ITLOS is in like a weird, odd suburb. You're like sort of in with a bunch of like rich houses, kind of tucked off in a corner. It's like in a very strange place. But is it pretty? I mean, if you go to the Peace Palace all the time, you think no other courthouse is pretty, I think. So no, it looks like a little bunker, actually. They're probably going to listen to this podcast. I shouldn't say this. They're all very nice. In <laughs> this sounds like the tribunals in The Hague. Yeah. I mean, the ICTY is also tucked off in a fancy neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Or a bit like, um, what's the one that's in the old KPN building? I think that's Lebanon. Yeah, that it, it feels a bit like that, sort of. It's just like, it, there must be a story as to why this building ended up here, but I don't know what it is. So, yeah, I was there. I was in Hamburg. But why? Come on. Why? <laughs> For Mauritius versus the Maldives in a maritime boundary dispute. <laughs> How did you? Very, very exciting stuff, (laughs) which was scheduled to open on my birthday. And so I had told work I was not going to be going for this because I did not want to go to Hamburg for a goddamn maritime boundary dispute on my birthday. And then I listened to your podcast. (gasps) The Philippe Sands podcast. Philippe Sands really sold me on how important and interesting this was. And so I spent my birthday on Hamburg because of you all and him. Just uh, let's see if we can find a clip of him talking about uh, it, loss and play it now. So this case goes to Hamburg. And what does the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea rule? It rules that the advisory opinion is authoritative. It has disposed of the dispute. There is no dispute. Chagos belongs to Mauritius. We can exercise jurisdiction and we will now proceed to delimit the maritime boundary. And the hearings on the merits phase start next month in October. Oh, that was Philippe Sands, and that got you to Hamburg. Was it fun? Well, it turned out that Philippe Sands and I have the same birthday, which we discovered on Twitter before we arrived. And so it actually ended up being quite a uh, fun time for what it can be for being in a you know a windowless courtroom when you're there for work. I did have a very, I don't know if hotels do this. I don't think I've ever stayed in a hotel on my birthday, but when I came down for hotel breakfast in the morning, they had written happy birthday on one of the hard boiled eggs that they had displayed out on the hotel <laughs> bar, which I thought was very cute. New one on me. I know. And I, it was really, it was very sweet. So the first person to wish me a happy birthday this year was a hard boiled egg. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was thinking that would be Philippe Sands maybe saying then happy Philippe birthday. Then Philippe Sands and I, I had a whole discussion about this. And then once, of course, the court staff and the tech guys and everyone realized that they had two people with birthdays, then I think everyone said happy birthday to us, which was quite cheery and lovely. So I assume you felt quite at home there. Yeah, they're renovating actually their courtroom. I have been there once or twice before and they usually have like this really beautiful courtroom, but you're in this like sort of sub courtroom thing where I had no, there's like no press accommodations basically. So we were sort of shoved into a corner with kind of like you're running an extension cable that one of the technicians gave us and sort of illegally trying to balance all of your recording and devices on random objects that you can find. It was extremely crowded. There was not a seat, free seat left in the house. I think... 
there was a lot of interest in this because of Chagos, um, but also, I mean, maritime law people don't get a lot of opportunities to go to court, <laughs> basically. And so there was a lot of like, like I sat next to some guy who had flown in from Malmo just to come for the hearings because he was he's like a postdoc researcher in maritime law and just like wanted to see what it was like. So there was a few people who were there from sort of East African publications. There was a couple of other journalists from that. There was a few German journalists and like a lot of people who were interested in like maritime law sort of stuff. So you said you were balancing all the recording equipment. So does that mean you got nice recording? I did get very good recordings. I did forget to bring, as you guys will appreciate, an extra XLR cable. So I had to beg one off of one of the tech guys, which is very embarrassing. But we managed to make it work. Oh man, even in your little cable organizer thing? I know, I didn't, I'd, uh, yeah, it was a bit oh, of a problem. Stop going on about cable <laughs> organizers, you two. I'm trying to make Molly a cable organizer influencer. Yeah, except then I have to remember to actually bring all the cables I need, which I did not for this trip, sadly. But in the end, it all worked out and we did get some uh, uh, recordings from the from the hearing. So I, you brought a first clip from the Agent of Mauritius for us? Yeah. Yes, there's a clip uh, sort of of the Agent of Mauritius introducing the case. And uh, unlike some cases, I think that we've been at where, you know, even these maritime boundary disputes, which seem kind of technical and maybe not so significant, but can be sometimes quite hostile. Um, you know, for example, this is it Somalia, Kenya case where at the ICJ, where Kenya refused to turn up, they were really sort of prickly about this. And I was there for this Chile, Bolivia case where they were, you know, really kind of jumping down each other's throats. This is a much more, seems like a much more friendly case. And in fact, the agent of Mauritius sort of opened with this statement about how these two countries have lots of common interests and they are, you know, very good friends and all this sorts of stuff. Mr. President, Maldives' change of position is most appreciated. We are neighboring countries with shared interests and common challenges. We welcome the clear commitment of Maldives to respect the special chamber's judgment on preliminary objections. It also reaffirms that despite our differences with regard to the delimitation of our common maritime boundary, Mauritius and Maldives continue to enjoy long-standing, warm and friendly relations, fostered over more than four decades. Mauritius and Maldives are small island developing states, which are confronted with the effects of climate change, sea level rise, economic and environmental vulnerabilities, and inherent structural handicaps, such as distance from larger markets and are dependent on tourism, which was severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. There is so much common ground between Mauritius and Maldives on so many issues, and that is evident from the tone of the recent exchange of correspondence between Maldives president and the Mauritius prime minister. As small island states, Mauritius and Maldives appreciate the value of ocean resources and attach great importance to measures to preserve and protect the environment. So before we get into that uh, nitty gritty of uh, your case, Molly, uh, which is to do with this boundary limitation, I think, between the, the two. And thank you for the shout out uh, to, the, to the Philippe Sands. I called up the dapperest international law dude on Twitter and asked him a few questions. That's Doug Gilfall, a professor in Canberra, who's also an expert on maritime law. So I thought, well, if anybody could explain it lost the tribunal and unclos the law, the UN law of the sea and how it all works, I was sure that he could. And of course, Molly and Steph sent in the questions, so I didn't need to think about those. So I started off with one of Steph's questions, which was, are the high seas in fact lawless? It is the kind of question to make a law of the sea lawyer's uh, adrenaline spike. Um, but no, the high seas aren't lawless, or at least 
no more lawless than the rest of the planet in terms of international law. So a substantial section of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which I know we'll come back to, deals with the regime of the high seas. There's also customary international law dealing with things like the freedom of the high seas and uh, laws against piracy. And the International Maritime Organization uh, spends a good chunk of its efforts dealing with navigational standards for vessels that traverse the high seas. So that's the formal side. That said, the high seas is a particularly difficult place to enforce the law. You've already mentioned UNCLOS, if, if that's how you say it, the, the UN bit of the law of the sea. And then we have ITLOS as well. So what are both of those acronyms and how do they work? Right. So the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea is uh, an extremely large convention. It runs to over 300 articles and multiple annexes, and it's commonly called the Constitution for the Oceans. So the idea was that uh, between 1973 and 1982, through the UN system, states gathered to negotiate a new package deal treaty governing not all, but certainly most aspects of maritime affairs. And that came about for a very curious reason, which is something that's not yet happened, deep seabed mining. So in the 1960s, there was concern that there was about to be a gold rush on the deep seabed floor for these things called polymetallic nodules, which contain um, valuable minerals such as copper and we've also discovered since cobalt rich crusts down there as well but if you're going to mine the seabed beyond national jurisdiction you need to know where national jurisdiction ends and the thing the 1958 suite of conventions on the law of the sea hadn't settled properly was actually the limits of national jurisdiction also it was the period of decolonization so you had a lot of states kind of fighting for a more just distribution of the world's ocean resources, which is one of the reasons it was a long and complex negotiation. That's UNCLOS. So as part of that was also ITLOS then created. And, and what is ITLOS? So ITLOS is the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. One of the disputes in regards to the new Law of the Sea Convention was how would disputes about the meaning of the convention be settled? Because you've spent all this time negotiating the convention, you don't want it unpicked by self-serving interpretations. But at the same time, you have situations like, you know, poorly resourced, newly independent states post decolonization who want control of their new fishery zones without sort of judicial review from industrialized states every 15 minutes challenging fisheries quotas. So there's this question of, you know, what subject matters will be in, what subject matters will be out, where should the disputes go to be settled? And so there were sort of four options on the table. There should be some things that are beyond a dispute resolution system. Then within dispute resolution options, there were those who favoured arbitration, those who favoured the International Court of Justice, and those who favoured a new mechanism. Now, part of this is historical. We have to think about when it was being negotiated. And it was being negotiated in the 20 years that the ICJ spent in the wilderness between 1966 and the Southwest Africa decisions, which were generally seen as as it were, anti-developing state decisions or decisions that were biased towards Western powers. And 1986, when the ICJ came back out of the cold and into favour with the Global South with the Nicaragua and USA decision. So there were basically a lot of developing states that did not trust the ICJ or did not 
think it was particularly representative. So you get the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, which is a very unusual tribunal because it has this enormous potential bench, 21 judges, but only one of them is permanently salaried and resident uh, in Hamburg, and that's the president of the tribunal. The others are only paid, as it were, for the days they work for the tribunal. So the tribunal was always meant to be, I think the language of the time was a cost effective mechanism. So you had all these different things in play. And the net result is under UNCLOS's dispute resolution system, you can go to the ICJ arbitration or IPLOS, and you're meant to specify when you join, which is your preferred mechanism. And if you don't specify a preference, it defaults to arbitration. But when you have to pick your arbitrators, there's an understandable tendency to go for judges of the ICJ or judges of IPLOS. So they wind up doing a lot of that work anyway. And their rules and their regulations and, and how they operate uh, is all kind of set set down, or has that also been something that, that has been developed over the years as to as to how to how it loss works? The way it loss works in practice is pretty similar uh, in many respects to the ICJ. So it loss has a statute, that's one of the annexes to UNCLOS, and then it has its own rules of procedure that the judges have devised and periodically updated. And one of the questions from Molly, because she's she's going to make me say this word and see if I can say it properly, is uh, that this case that she's been looking at, which is what we kind of basically known as the Chagos case, because we did the interview previously with Philippe Sands, is about archipelagic nations. Um, so archipelagic nations, meaning nations made up of lots of little islands. So are there specific rules around those kinds of nations and, and their boundaries? There is a whole part of UNCLOS that deals just with archipelagic states. And essentially the argument of um, what were called mid-ocean archipelagos, so states that were exclusively made of islands, was that the water, as it were, joining up the various islands should have a special status. So also there was a question about the ordinary rules of baselines. So the line from which you measure outwards your maritime zone normally follows the low tide mark. But that's very complex technical work if you're made up of dozens of smaller islands. And so a special set of rules was devised in UNCLOS so you can use a straight baseline system if it encloses a land to water area in a ratio of uh, between one to one and one to nine. So for example, on those sorts of ratios, the Philippines and Indonesia, but the United Kingdom is not, even though the United Kingdom is entirely made up of um, islands or island territories, you can't meaningfully draw baselines if you do that kind of ratio. Then within those baselines, you have archipelagic waters which you can kind of think of as being sort of somewhere between the status of a sovereign territorial sea and straits used for international navigation. So it's not the full territorial sea regime, but it's more controlled than you would have had under the old law of the sea before you had this concept of archipelagic waters. Why does the, the case that is being discussed now at, at ITLOS uh, matter? Does it have ramifications on this, these issues about access? all over the world. Yeah, what, what are the big themes in that case? Well, first to declare an interest, 
between 2010 and 2014, I did some work in Mauritius as part of their legal team on the first UNCLOS case, but I've had no substantive involvement since, but obviously I've followed the case. So really the core issue for Mauritius is this question about, as the title of the ICJ advisory opinion goes, uh, the legal consequences of the detachment of the Chagos Archipelago from Mauritius in 1965, prior to its independence in 1968, and whether it legally forms part of Mauritius or whether at the least it has a special legal status because of a series of undertakings given to the pre-independence Mauritius government by the United Kingdom called the Lancaster House undertakings, which included phrases such as, if the defence need for the archipelago disappears, it will be returned to Mauritius and that its natural resources would be managed for and on behalf of Mauritius. The defence need being that the purpose of detaching it from the Mauritius colonial administration and making it its own special area was so that the United Kingdom could lease it as an airbase to the United States, a process which obviously resulted in the population of the archipelago, the Chagossians, being displaced. So the question for uh, Mauritius has essentially been, is it our sovereign territory, which has been kept from us in violation of the law of decolonization, or is it at the least a territory in which we have some special legal interest because of the Lancaster House undertakings? And so that question has been agitated through a series of proceedings in the first UNCLOS arbitration, which was about whether the United Kingdom could unilaterally and without consulting Mauritius declare a marine protected area throughout the exclusive economic zone of the archipelago. Um, the question was essentially, is the UK the coastal state at all, which is a question going to sovereignty, which the majority of the tribunal wasn't willing to touch, or do we at least have special rights in those waters because of the promises made to us by the United Kingdom? And the majority just focused on that second question. Two arbitrators, Judges Kateka and Wolfram of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea said they would have resolved it in favour of Mauritius on the decolonisation point. The decolonization point then goes to the ICJ in the advisory opinion and is comprehensively resolved in favour of Mauritius. And then Mauritius has been able to plead that it is the entity with which the Maldives must settle a maritime boundary because the ICJ has said that the United Kingdom's occupation of the archipelago is illegal and everyone must cooperate to bring it to an end. So, in a sense, this is not a case with implications necessarily for archipelagos everywhere else. This is very much about the kind of consequences of decolonization. But going back to my earlier point, UNCLOS itself, in many ways, is a consequence of decolonization. It was the first big multilateral treaty-making exercise that, knew that states that acquired their independence in the 50s and 60s got to participate in. Beyond the, that specific case, what is the, the biggest controversy that's going on in maritime law at the moment that uh, we journalists and others should be looking out for? Well, obviously, there's an ongoing dispute around the states of the South China Sea. And one of the interesting things there have been questions, uh, largely, I've got to say, agitated by Chinese scholars and diplomats about whether the Law of the Sea Convention is outdated uh, and whether it should be regarded as covering everything. So there's this question about, can you, in a sense, drive wedges into the Law of the Sea Convention and say it's got 
mixed metaphor holes in it, and therefore we need new law, or we can assert there are special rules of customary international law that fit in these holes that suit our case. Also, with events in Ukraine and heightened tensions over the Taiwan Strait, scholars are coming back to the questions of what are the laws that govern naval warfare? And really, those haven't been updated in any significant way since the Second World War, other than expert manual drafting exercises such as the San Remo manual of the 1990s. And there are real questions about things like the protection of uh, submarine cables and pipelines. And we've obviously seen uh, what appears to have been sabotage or an attack on gas pipelines out of Russia. But in the event of, say, a global conflict between uh, perhaps the US and China, what would happen if one side or the other decided it was to their advantage to start severing submarine data cables? That's 90% of international information traffic. And the traditional laws of war say you have belligerents who can fight each other under the laws of war and neutrals who should be, to whatever extent possible, immunized from the consequences of the conflict. But you can't sever submarine cables, even if they're a legitimate military target, without it having impacts on neutrals. And do the laws of war adequately take account of those adverse impacts for neutrals? because such naval warfare as we've got dealing with submarine cables essentially really still has its roots in uh, the Hague Conventions on Land Warfare and the 1884 Paris Submarine Telegraph Cables Convention, all of which presume that what undersea cables are for are point-to-point -point communication, not networked communication, and that you could sever a cable and it would only be between state A and state B rather than having uh, widespread consequences, which we've seen even from anchor dragging incidents in the Mediterranean. You know, there aren't that many submarine cables, and there are a couple of critical knowns. And even a careless fisherman in the wrong place at the wrong time can wind up having a major impact on the world's communication system. Yeah, the submarine cables is really interesting. And it's Part of why I asked this question, because after the South Stream sabotage thing, there, of course, the whole Reuters office was going, what if they cut, you know, the internet cables and what could they do underwater? And then who rules it? And all looked at me like, Steph. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like you should know all of the rules from the 1880s, Paris and San Remo and, exactly. and stuff, apparently. All this stuff we need to get our heads around. The San Remo handbook. I mean, it sounds like the perfect underground punk band. If, if it doesn't exist, we should start it. But they started this maritime law stuff. It started with like the cannon shot rule. So like it used to be that a country controlled the maritime boundaries as far as a cannon shot was, because that's basically what you could defend. <laughs> Okay, so, they, so get your cannon. Up, they updated from this. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. So it's pretty ancient stuff. But, oh, yeah, well, should we go into now and what you've you've just been doing? Give us some background, Molly, because, you know, as you can tell, we know nothing. What stage are we at the proceedings? You're, you're, you're drowning in this. What's a good, I'm trying to think of a good water <laughs> pun, the sort of the, the, the tides have taken you out. What's a good... Uh, we're, we're barely keeping our barely heads, keeping our our heads, heads above, above water. water. There we go. Perfect. Um, so this dispute is uh, ostensibly between Mauritius and the Maldives. They are two Indian islands, Indian islands. They are two Indian Ocean island nations. And they are sort of having this controversy over who gets to control these waters. It's about 96,000 square kilometers of ocean. And fundamentally, their debate is about where you sort of measure 
the points from to delineate these boundaries. So Doug talked a little bit about how why this is complicated. Normally you measure these maritime boundaries when the tide is out from these points, but like these archipelagical islands, they don't have tides in the same way. So it gets like kind of messy with like the technical stuff. But really what this case is about is Chagos because the the islands in question are claimed by Mauritius and Mauritius wants to delineate its boundary from these islands in question and the UK refuses to relinquish control of them. And the UK refuses to accept the International Court of Justice's uh, advisory opinion, advisory opinion yes. that, that they don't have control. Right. These, they belong to Mauritius. So that begs the question... Why is this a dispute between Mauritius and the Maldives, and where is the UK in the Idlos case? Because if Chagos belongs to the UK according to the UK, I mean, it doesn't according to the ICJ, and so... And nor does it according to Idlos. They had hearings on jurisdiction. Um, the Maldives' first argument was is that there is no dispute here between the Maldives and Mauritius. Any dispute would be between the Maldives and the UK, because the UK is in control of the Chagos Islands. But the court accepted its jurisdiction, essentially saying, like, no, Mauritius has the right to claim these islands. And so this is why we are here sort of having this dispute. Now, I think there's a bit of a question as to how much these countries are actually fighting over this area. They don't have huge fishing industries. The only sort of real interest here, I think, valuable economic development is kind of fishing. Both of the countries, their agents were very quick to sort of point out that their economies are quite dependent on tourism and not fishing. They're, they seem to be sort of making this point that actually this is, it's not really a question about their economic zones. Um, and in fact, the Maldives agents in his opening statements on Thursday basically said, the only reason we're here is because Mauritius is sort of trying to stick its thumb in the eye of the UK over the Chagos Islands. At the preliminary objections phase of these proceedings, I informed the chamber that Mauritius appeared to have commenced these proceedings primarily with a view to advancing its bilateral dispute with the United Kingdom concerning sovereignty over the Chagos archipelago, rather than to resolve any significant dispute with the Maldives concerning the law of the sea. The current phase of these proceedings has confirmed that the scope of the dispute between the parties, which is within the Chamber's jurisdiction, is indeed very narrow. To the boundaries, the basic idea of this is if Mauritius has Chagos, that pushes its territorial waters out a lot because Chagos is a long way off from from Mauritius and then everything between Chagos and Mauritius, you would start looking at delineation only from Chagos onwards and not before Chagos as, as you would possibly now. Yeah, exactly. And two decades ago, I think the UK and the Maldives had already like sort of delineated this boundary. And in 2010, the UK declared this whole area like a marine protected zone. So there is some discussion about what will happen to these waters should Itlos rule that they, you know, that the boundaries are where Mauritius says that they should be. But most of that debate is like wildly technical. And then you just sort of get into these extremely specific arguments about base points and surveys and technical things. And there's lots of maps and it, yes, qu- it very quickly becomes a <laughs> rather mundane international maritime boundary dispute case. I remember sitting into one of these cases where the ICJ about islands off the Gulf of Oman. And then there was, I think, three hours of discussion back and forth about whether certain rocks were dry 
in certain tides yes. or not, because if they're dry for a longer period of time and it's actually an island and not just an outcrop or something like that. And what is an intercontinental shelf and like how you measure all this stuff? It gets very dry, ironically, very quickly for something that is actually in the ocean. But wasn't there any fun? I mean, the fun, I think, came from the fact that there was a lot of really bad puns and jokes made, which you don't normally see. But I think because this case is not actually so contentious between the Mauritius and the Maldives, I feel like their lawyers got a little bit of a longer leash to sort of be a little amusing, as only international lawyers think they can be. Um, I mean, Philippe Sands is always a great lawyer to have in court because he's such an excellent speaker. And he sort of went off on this tangent about Heinz ketchup and how it promises that it has 57 varieties of tomatoes, but we all know that this is a lie, much in the same way that Mauritius or the Maldives was using this number 57 for something that they claimed was like not available in the technical data. Having initially conceded that Blenheim Reef was a low tide elevation, the Maldives has now changed its position. In its rejoinder, it now asserts that Blenheim Reef is actually 57 distinct low tide elevations rather than a single LTA. We don't know where the 57 comes from. Sounds a bit like Heinz's claim that its famous ketchup comprises 57 different varieties of tomato. But that claim, as with the ketchup, is false. And then in the opening statements from the Maldives on Thursday, one of their lawyers, Pavan Akcham, who's a core, also a big international lawyer, to sort of picked up on this ketchup thing and started referring to this problem as a intercondimental shelf issue, which oh. it was so bad and I laughed so hard. And how did all the maritime law uh, nerds or the, the people who traveled all the way to see this in this packed courtroom react? Were they uh, as amused by this as you were? I don't think so. I mean, I think it, not infrequently lawyers do not have... A sense of humor. This is going to get me canceled from my <laughs> job. But it was it was sort of funny to be sitting there, especially as Sands was talking, because he's such a great, you know, just a good orator, right? And, you know, I'm kind of giggling in the corner, like I think we would be if we were all sitting in a press room with his like jokes. And I think a lot of these like sort of law expert people were kind of side eyeing me and not really sure if it's like appropriate in this very formal and important setting to be laughing at Philippe Sands' ketchup jokes. But is simply interested in avoiding a collision with such shallow features, even if they are fully submerged at low tide. We invite Mauritius to abandon those nautical charts and rely on its own more accurate survey report. And this brings me to the only useful information arising from the survey, namely confirmation that Blenheim Reef is definitely not a single low tide elevation. Mr. President, Council for Mauritius expressed some confusion as to the source of the Maldives data in this respect. We have no idea where the number 57 comes from, he said in surprise. There was even something about Heinz ketchup on the condimental kitchen shelf, claiming that each bottle consists of 57 tomatoes without any proof of the Maldives 57 different varieties of tomato. We have an easy answer for Mauritius. 
it needs to look no further than its own survey report. The 57 different varieties are the fruits of its own effort. And I add, Mr. President, that a tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable. And how long will this whole thing take? I mean, we understand, you know, they've, they've said they do have jurisdiction. This is now the arguments on the merits then? Yes. Yeah, so they've moved on to the arguments on the merits. As we are recording today, they are still doing their opening statements from the Maldives, which they had two days for. And then it will run into sometime next week, Monday or Tuesday. So that's still in October. We'll probably yeah. be putting this out in November. Yeah, so they they have a few more they have a few more days to sort of debate the the merits of this and I think most of that is basically a lot of this technical survey data and you know where how long is this island dry for and what is climate change doing to these kinds of things and is this a reef or is it not a reef that you know this sort of things that you get into with the nitty-gritty stuff of yeah, maritime boundary disputes. So, how long is it going to take? Um, it's, it's international justice, Janet. We could be back here in decades. Um, I think, judging kind of from how fast ITLOS puts out its decisions, we'll see something probably next year. I think sometime, maybe before the summer even, but perhaps before the end of the year. And Janet explained something to me that I didn't know before. It's that ITLOS only has one permanent judge and they're still rotating and they're sometimes familiar faces from cases we see here. Any familiar faces on the judges bench? Yeah, I think that there was one or two ICJ judges who were there when I was there. Also, somebody who was serving as an ad hoc judge had... <laughs> I was in line behind him for at security and he'd brought his wife along and she was like very excited because she'd like, this was, I guess the first time that he'd been at Itlos and she was like very excited to like come to like a trial. And I felt kind of bad for her. Cause I was like, <laughs> I don't think you're going to like, I think you're the way she was describing it. I think she was picturing like law and order. And like, I was like, this is not going to be law and order. <laughs> they never are these ones, yeah. are they? Yeah. It's a weird, when they designed this court, the idea was that it was supposed to be very like efficient and like cost effective. So they only have one permanent judge on staff. I was wondering, did they have that uh, that court architecture where they want it to look cheap and efficient, and so they go for like IKEA wood paneling everywhere? Yes, and a lot of glass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was sort of created. I think Doug talked about this in this like sort of time when the ICJ was kind of in this like sort of no man's land because it had made this really horrible ruling and this like apartheid case and like nobody wanted to bring cases there because they were like these judges are horrible and racist and we don't want to dispute things and then it sort of changed its trajectory in this Nicaragua US case but in this like sort of no man's land time this is when it was created and so they sort of designed this to kind of be like a really effective and efficient system. So yeah, they only have one permanent judge on staff. They can seat 21 judges, which is like a very large panel of judges. Yeah, wow. I think only the ECHR maybe has a bigger judge panel. Yeah, I can't speak. I mean, there might be some court in, I don't know, Bangladesh. Well, we can just ask our listeners if anybody knows of yeah, a, of a biggest, biggest yeah, panel biggest possible. Panel. It's bigger than what you can see at the Court of Justice in Luxembourg, because I think that their biggest is 17. So I think ICJ is 17, it's yeah. 15 plus two ad hoc so, judges. Why do you need so many judges? That's a lot of judges. Oh, they like having something to judge. 
yeah, you got to do something with all these maritime law PhDs that were sitting in the audience. They have to have some sort of career to aspire to. Absolutely. So you'll come back in maybe when there is some kind of a decision, or maybe we'll have Philippe Sands in as well to on our birthdays next year. Perhaps we could all come into a. Philippe, if you're hearing this, this is a standing invitation to come have cake with us and Molly on your birthday and discuss the Chagos case. Chagos, and we'll we'll extend the invite to. Professor Sands as well. Of course. Even though this is a justice update, we know that you are a vocarious reader and consumer of pop culture, so we we can't let you go, and I don't think you would want to leave here without I'm telling I'm only us. here to talk about what I'm reading, Dan. Reading, watching, listening <laughs> yeah. to. Go ahead. So, of course, I am reading, I am finishing up The Last Colony, so Philippe Sansa's book about Chagos, which is very good, and I would recommend it, even if you're not really a international law sort of person, because he's quite a good writer, and the story is really, I mean, it really tugs a little bit about your heartstrings, about how these people were, when they were forcibly removed, and the stories about the cemeteries, with how the Chagosian cemeteries were overgrown and horrible, and the American service dogs cemeteries were, like, neat and pristine and perfect, and yeah, I mean, it really, like, sort of drives the point home of how horrible this was for these people who have still not been able to return home. The other thing I am reading, it is, of course, spooky season. So I'm reading a lot of horror right now. And at the moment, I'm reading this book called The Fervor, which is about Japanese internment camps during the Second World War. And there's some kind of spooky plague-like thing, zombie plague-like thing going on. So this book is sort of like a zombie plague situation set in Japanese internment camps during the Second World War, which is... I was going to say quite delightful, but that does not really seem like the appropriate <laughs> adjective for such a Well, book. it marries like your penchant for horrors together with like, I don't know. Penchant for war crimes. Yeah, penchant <laughs> for war crimes and international. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's about, uh, yeah, that's about accurate. So that's what I've been, uh, I've been reading lately. I had to once do this course. I did an online course in international law and they had exam questions and, and they had vampires fighting zombies and then uh talking about what then was a war crime if the vampires did this or that and i was like this is completely like the venn diagram of what i like <laughs> the things that i'm interested in <laughs> so i was very very much enjoying those well i mean were the vampires and zombies officially a war because it cannot be a war crime unless you have a conflict i mean we as we know was it non-international or international uh, and are fangs actually weapons oh uh, yeah <laughs> Okay, let's wrap. That's it. Thank you so much, Molly, for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. It's always fun to uh, to come pop by the podcast. And thanks for eating the cake. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.